0: Well, good morning. In previous uh, weeks or several weeks ago, we we looked at the first two chapters of the book of Isaiah. And if you can please turn with me this morning uh, again to the book of Isaiah in chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 3, verse 1. And And this passage of scripture, it addresses the cause of social collapse. So it's Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1, and I'll read to the end of chapter 4. And just to give you some relief, chapter 4 is only six verses long, but I'll read that passage of Scripture. It says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of the fifty And the honourable man, the counsellor and the expert artisan and the skilful enchanter, and I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed, each one by another and each one by his neighbour. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honourable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious pre, uh, presence the expression of their faces bears witness against them and they display their sin like Sodom they do not even conceal it woe to them for they have brought evil on themselves say to the righteous that it will go well with them for they will eat the fruit of their actions woe to the wicked it will go badly with him for what he deserves will be done to him. O oh, my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. Uh, verse 13. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard the plunder of poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 16, moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and they walk with heads held high and seductive eyes. They go along with mincing steps and tingle the bangles on their feet. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, uh, their headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, Hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. They had quite the wardrobe. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty." Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle and her gates will lament and mourn and deserted she will sit on the ground. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. (coughs) Excuse me, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Uh, 4 verse 2, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride of, And the adornment of the survivors of israel it will come about that he who is left in zion and remains in jerusalem will be called holy everyone who is recorded for life in jerusalem when the lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of zion and purged the bloodshed of jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning then the lord will create over the whole area of mount zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. And so that is the third and fourth uh, chapters of the prophet Isaiah, two quite unfamiliar passages to uh, most people. And we might wonder, what on earth could that say? to us today, but we find ourselves in these chapters in the middle of a single prophecy that began in chapter 2, and chapter 2 verse 1, and it ends in chapter 4. So chapter 2 to chapter 4 are are one prophecy, and so to give you a sense of the overall structure, the first few verses of chapter 2 and the last few verses of chapter 4 form a parenthesis, or they're like brackets, the few verses at the start and end of the section uh, so at the beginning and end of the prophecy, we're launched into the future and given a prophetic word of the coming kingdom of God. That's what marks the vision at the beginning and end of this prophecy. But in the middle, we drop back into reality or life as it actually was for Judah and Jerusalem in the theocratic kingdom of Israel some 2,700 years ago. And so it's, it's between these two contrasting realities that the focus of the, uh, we could say, the prophetic telescope of Isaiah keeps alternating between that distant future and that actual reality that they, that they lived in. So sometimes the focus is the immediate disobedience of the people and the immediate coming day of judgment by means of exile by a foreign nation. But at, at other times, the vision expands and the day of the Lord, that technical term, the day of the Lord, becomes an eschatological day of judgment for the entire world, a future day. And so this is just as chapter 2 verse 21 said, when when God arises to make the whole earth tremble, it speaks of a whole earth judgment. But one thing we need to keep in mind when we're considering this, this subject of the kingdom of God, and this may come as a surprise to some, but it's the The future kingdom of God is is not pictured as the Messiah merely ruling and reigning over the church or ruling and reigning over the spiritual sphere. But the Messiah at at both ends of this prophecy is described as ruling and reigning over all nations and the whole world. In Isaiah uh, chapter 2 verse 4, we saw that he will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples. And we saw that nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So this coming kingdom is described as a time of worldwide peace. Uh, and, and the world ever since Eden, ever since the fall in, in the Garden of Eden, has never experienced a time like that. So we know that that time is, is yet future. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, another prophecy that colors in the subject of the kingdom of God, it says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. So in other words, this, this coming Messiah is said to be both a religious leader and a political leader, a governing leader, and to rule both over the spiritual and the civil spheres of this world and planet. I think that's an excellent encouragement. Um, But the Old Testament picture of this this kingdom of God that we're beginning to see develop and it develops with incredible detail throughout the the book of Isaiah. Uh, Zechariah, the prophet, he says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. That's the picture of the coming kingdom, the extent of the rule and reign of the coming king. But it's uh, one of the more significant interpretive decisions is, is what we start to bump into as we consider the kingdom of God. And as we, we start to try to piece together how the whole Bible is to be understood, some would say that the Jews took these prophecies of the king, coming kingdom, they took them too literally, um, that they had uh, earthly and carnal expectations of the Messiah, and that when Jesus came uh, that, that they thought that he would be this political ruler which they saw in these scriptures, um, but he would do things like get rid of the Romans. And so Jesus, we see evidence in the New Testament that Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and, and the Jews at large, outside of those few that believed in him, they, they did get something wrong. There was something significantly wrong. But, but from this line of thinking, the clu- conclusion, it's often made that, that we're to read these prophecies of the kingdom as metaphors or in a figurative manner emphasizing only the spiritual or the salvific elements of them. And so we limit the scope of what we see the kingdom of God to be just to uh, salvation in salvific terms. And because uh, they say, if you were to read the Old Testament prophets literally, you'd be guilty of making the same mistake as the Jews. That's the type of argument that would come back. But I believe there is a better approach or what we'd call a better hermeneutic, which is just a word that describes the rules or the way in which we uh, interpret the Bible, a hermeneutic. And if you can turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verse 25, I'll give you a second to get there. But we see something that's a bit of a key, and we see how the New Testament uh, interprets these Old Testament prophecies, because there was this incredible picture of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25, it says this And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, meaning this coming Messiah, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so we see here exactly what the Jews got wrong. It wasn't that the Messiah would come in glory. Uh, to rule over the earth, their problem was that that aspect wasn't all that the prophets had spoken. Their error was that they only saw part of the truth or, or they only emphasized part of the truth. they only saw the glorious return of Christ and his ruling and reigning over the nations they 'd missed that the prophets had also spoken of his sufferings, his dying as a substitute for sinners, and the spiritual aspects of grace and salvation that flowed from his death and resurrection, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, it makes the same point by saying, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted. And we say, when he predicted what? What did he predict it? And it says, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent Glories and, and the way the New Testament writers understood the prophetic picture uh, of the kingdom of God, it included both the sufferings and the glory, both the spiritual and the earthly, the religious and the uh, political. And we could even say in a, in a very real sense, this future rule and reign would be over the church and the state, which is absolutely foreign to the, the time and redemptive history what we live now, but that is the future picture of this coming king but how they did that was to understand the this great mystery that was obscured it was it was dimly lit in the old testament but it became revealed more clearly in the new that there would be two comings of Christ two comings of Messiah things would happen at his first time there'd be a great period of time and there would still be things to happen in the future so first he would come to suffer and secondly he would come in glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when we understand scripture like that and read like that, it fits more naturally into place. And we can let, uh, as we look in these prophetic scriptures, we can let the future glorious aspects of the coming kingdom be read with the same hermeneutic as those that literally predicted his first coming and his sufferings. And so that's a, this one thing I wanted to comment on before we actually looked at our text. Um, but it's one of the things we, we start to see become apparent as we try to understand what do these prophetic passages of Scripture mean? What do they refer to? But as we come now to our, our text directly, we've seen this vision of the great and coming kingdom of God. And then we saw, that was at the beginning of chapter 2, and then we saw the drop down into reality and the disobedience of God's people. In chapter 2, Judah had made for themselves idols. They trusted in man. They had no regard for God. And to summarize, they had rejected God, and a coming day of judgment was promised. As we come to chapter 3, we continue in that same vein of judgment. But here, rather than their religious failings, rather than doing things like making idols and false gods, um, here, we see the civil failings of the people are are what's highlighted. And so verse 1, it begins with the word for. So in light of something that's happened for, and so because of their rejection of God and their reliance on human strength, one commentator said, because of the replacement of the true God by false gods, society must inevitably collapse. And in what follows, we see that when a society rejects God, everything begins to fall apart. And so you could uh, think of it like this, that God is the spring and the fountain or the source of everything that is good and true. And when you stop up that spring, the very rivers of goodness and truth that once flowed and watered the land begin to dry up. And society begins to experience a famine of goodness and truth. And so it's so key what a society does uh, with God. But verse 1 says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away, he's removing certain things, taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah, supply and support, all support of bread and all support of water, and so these first two verses, we see that God is comprehensively starting to take away everything, like everything that stabilizes a society. And so the, the words support and supply, um, they're actually the masculine and feminine forms of the same word. It's the, it's the same word, but it conveys the meaning of removing every support and every supply. But it It actually, this is where I took some sense of an outline from as well, from that that idea of the masculine and feminine and of that that same word, because the the passage that we'll look at is is broken into uh, really two halves. But in verses 1 to 7, in chapter 3, there's a rebuke of the leading men in society. uh, And in chapters, uh, there's a little uh, gap in the middle where we see the cause of everything that's going on. But from verse Uh, 3 verse 16 to 4 verse 1, the second main section is a rebuke of the leading woman uh, in the society. Um, But first here we we see that bread and water are removed. And so this describes either a time of famine or a time of economic disaster where the very basics, the fundamental, uh, I guess, necessities of life, bread and water become out of reach of the ordinary people. Uh, verse 2 continues to list uh, these things that are removed from society. It says the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of the 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan and the skillful enchanter. And and what this means is that God will remove the notable and leading people in society. So the army... uh, Those who provide defense to the nation, they provide defense, strength, uh, security, and safety, and those aspects of society are removed. The judges are mentioned. Uh, They're those that are entrusted with upholding law and order and justice in a society. They will be either removed or corrupted, uh, and, and aspects of society like the police will be disrespected, It mentions the prophets, those people that would speak God's word and truth into a society uh, will be pushed away as useless and irrelevant, and the elders, the the counselors, the advisors, it it describes them as the princes and the civil servants. Uh, It means those mature and wise leading figures that are meant to be pillars in a healthy society, it even includes all the skilled, all the excellent craftsmen, Uh, there will be no more. And so those good old days will be a distant memory to the aged and will not even be known by the youth. And so all these things God is removing from their society. Verse 4 speaks of what will replace them. So if you look there at verse 4 and it says, I will make mere lads their princes and capricious children shall rule over them. And so uh, the word for mere lads, it refers to young and immature leaders, uh, those lacking experience and wisdom and ability to govern. And the, and the term, it's probably translated different things in your Bibles, but uh, in, in, in my Bible anyway, it's, it's translated as capricious children has the sense of leaders that are severe and ruthless. And so One commentator described this as leaders behaving with the unpredictability and thoughtless cruelty of children. And another described the anarchy resulting under such imbecile rulers where the traditional forms of respect are violated. (coughs) And so I'll mention one passage of scripture, you don't need to turn there, Leviticus 19 verse 2 i think they had totally forgotten this aspect of their law leviticus 19 verse 2 says you shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged (coughs) excuse me and you shall revere god and i hope we haven't forgotten that as well but in verse 5 we see the the results of this new new leadership so rather than uh, freedom and a thriving society. It says, and the people will oppress one another. And so everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor. And so this suggests a, a time of conflict and division and hostility that results from these naive leaders that have assumed control and made foolish and reckless social policy. Uh, verse 5 continues, the youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. And so here, positions of leadership uh, that were once given to those who had appropriate and proper qualifications and years of proven experience and an honorable character and reputation to go along with it. That was the good old days are now demanded by the youth. Their positions are demanded by the youth who seek to advance by way of shortcut without regard to character, dignity, virtue, value, skill, or expertise. And so we could say that the qualifications for leadership uh, become to be considered far too lightly. Um, and the positions of authority in the society they they literally become flooded with fools. It's just, it's just silly, foolish leadership. And so as the immature and the immoral, as we'll soon see as well, take control, the society begins to crumble. And so the people Uh, seem to give up on their leaders. They lose trust in the system, and unrighteousness and injustice just seems to be reigning. There seems to be no way to to pull this society back. Um, And there's such a lack of leaders that verse 6 describes them. There's a bit of a shift here. It describes them as trying to grab the first person they can meet, uh, anyone they can possibly get to try and fix their problems and be a leader. So verse 6 says, For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father. It's Just ordinary people that we know. You have a cloak. (laughs) and You're like, well, a cloak? Well done. You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he will speak out. So there's this guy that's being asked to be the leader. And he'll say, I will not be your healer. In my house, there's neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. No one even wants to to lead the people. And so one said of this, a nation state must be bad indeed when none among the men naturally ambitious is willing to accept office so this is a, a picture of a severely broken and sick society people don't believe anymore that even if they were put in a position of of power that they could even uh, make any dent or any sense of difference but as we move on to the next section, it's uh, verses 8 to 15, that, that middle section I mentioned. We're, we're told of the root cause of the collapse of this society. Verse 8, in a summary fashion, says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. And then it tells us why it uses that word because. This is, this is why they fell, because their speech and their actions, that is everything they say, everything that they do, are against the Lord, uh, to rebel against His glorious presence. And so, just as in Romans 1, uh, this is Romans 1, verse 28, when mankind rejected God, and, and you remember it says he did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, that was the undergirding reason. God gave them over to a depraved mind. And it's always the same underlying principle. Our society's greatest problem is a theological problem, but they fell into moral decline. And so here, for the same reason, we see a fall into civil and social decline. And Isaiah says, as I mentioned, all of their speech and actions were against the Lord. That was the dominant current in their society. It was like a riptide that forced the direction of everything that was getting swept along in their society. And it swept everything away to ruin, and always behind uh, any rebellion of God is, is a desire for unrighteousness. And so, if we think of Romans 1 again, it speaks of mankind suppressing the truth, but it adds in unrighteousness. That's how or why they suppress the truth. And that's what we see in verse 9 here as well. It says, The expression of their faces bears witness against them. And you might say, Well, well, what does that mean? But it means that the countenance of their faces gives us clues. Uh, or we could think of this as saying something like, "I can tell by the look on your face." Um, and what we find is that they were—they had become openly proud. You could—you could tell by looking at people. They were arrogant in their rebellion. They'd grown tired of sinning quietly or sinning in secret. They had forgotten how to blush, as it were, and they were now boasting and glorying in their sin. They were openly sinning and rebelling against God. And so one commentator said they have lost not only the substance of virtue, but its color. And in Jude, that book just before the book of Revelation, Jude 1 verse 13, it it pictures these same type of men as uh, wild waves of the sea, and it says, casting up their own shame like foam, and so what was happening in Judah and Jerusalem was a whole moral reversal was taking place, and so another commentator said, Sin is no longer sin; it is the new morality, and thus it is that societies collapse. I find god 's word incredible. 2,700 years ago, this was uh, written. (coughs) Excuse me, but our our text goes on and it says, and they display their sin like Sodom. And I'm sure in your mind, you hear that word Sodom and and you know that it alludes to the worst forms of sexual immorality. Uh, So they're not even concealing it. And Isaiah speaking for God pronounces a curse. He says, woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. And so, so they, the society has set themselves against God. Jerusalem uh, has stumbled and Judah has fallen. And in verse 10, we see next uh, a word of comfort spoken to the righteous. And I think I need a word of comfort at this point as, as you see um, a society falling apart and as we even think and see a society crumbling around us. Um, Because there are those that still honor God, but still live and still suffer through all the consequences of a broken society. We don't get excused from it. We still have to go through it. Verse 10 says, Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they they will eat the fruit of their actions. And so although the the God-fearing in Judah may even die, some of them would be taken captive too. Some of them would die too. Um, it's the more distant future that will vindicate them. That's the sense in which it means it will go well for them, not the immediate future. But verse 11 uh, is a word in an in opposite fashion to the unrighteous. And it says, Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. And so, in Uh, Verses 12 to 15, it's as if God looks back on all that we've seen so far and he laments and he says, "'Oh, my people, their oppressors are children "'and women rule over them.'" And so this refers back to the young and the naive leaders that we saw earlier. And I take the negative reference to women to refer more to the sense of weakness than specifically to their gender, and so that comment stands in contrast to the strong warriors, the mighty men, the military leaders uh, that were removed in, in chapter 3 verse 2. And those aspects of leadership were so valued in, in their particular society. But I, I take this to mean something like this, oh my, my people, your oppression and misery is due to your foolish, irresponsible, and weak leaders. And so that seems to be to me, how the verse continues, it says, Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and they confuse the direction of your paths. This, this new way of thinking was causing other people to think differently. And so Isaiah here uses uh, this word guide. He uses it ironically. And the Hebrew word means uh, those who set you right, and these guides are setting the people wrong. And if you can allow me to, to quote again another commentator, because I, I can't describe this uh, better than him. He says, The old established signposts of right living and sound society are gone as totally as if someone had swallowed them. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll pass over verses 13 to 15 quickly, but it's a, it's a word of judgment To the elders and the princes of the people they said to crush the people and to grind the faces of the poor Uh, and this speaks as we've seen already of the severeness and the cruelty of the the new leaders and their policies Uh, they didn't treat the people with dignity and it it actually reminds me of uh, jesus when he when he came at his first coming when he when he looked up and you remember he saw the widow putting her last coins into the temple offering box And he denounced the leaders for devouring widows' houses and for taking all that she had. She had nothing. That was the last of everything that she had. And so Jesus rebuked them uh, severely um, for for extracting every last cent out of her under the guise of their false religion. And so that passage doesn't model for us good giving. It models the severity of the, the leaders. But starting in verse 16... We see the, the next major section of the prophecy. And so, to balance out uh, God's severe word to the leading men, so it was mostly targeted at the, the male leadership of the, the country and, and the verses we've seen. Um, but now the leading women face uh, God's scrutiny. And so, we see their contribution. What, what were the ladies doing to contribute to this crumbling society? And if you look at verse. Uh, 16 it says moreover meaning like in addition to everything else this was also taking place and it says the Lord said because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes they go along and I love the word with mincing steps uh, and tinkle the bangles on their feet but I trust you can have a picture of what these ladies were doing uh, they, they, they were doing everything they possibly could to be sexually appealing. That was what was underwriting their attitude. That's what God says, uh, says is the notable feature of the woman in a society that's heading downhill into disaster. And his uh, response is in verse 17. It says, therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. And you can imagine these ladies that that once lived in luxury being dragged off into exile. So the, the graphic imagery, you just imagine people getting ripped off, taken, armies running through the country, taking them off captive into exile. Verse 18 says, In that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, I need a deeper breath, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, feastal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, because they love to look at themselves, undergarments, turbans, and veils. They had the works. And so this was the 7th century BC's version of the Kardashians. That's the only way I can think of it. (laughs) But verse 24 It says, now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. That's severe judgment. Instead of a belt, a rope, (coughs) instead of well set hair, plucked out scalp, uh, instead of fine clothes, uh, sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. And so you can see that it was a serious matter to God. That wasn't, I know we just laughed at it, but (coughs) it was a serious matter to God. And so he is not pleased with a loose society uh, obsessed with luxury, uh, body image, and sex. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, But there, um, the judgment, it continues into verse 25, and it says, "Uh, Your men will fall by the sword. Uh, your mighty ones in battle and her gates uh, will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. So, excuse me. But in chapter 4. Um, The first verse here in chapter 4, it actually uh, continues as as part of that last section we've looked at. It says, for seven women uh, will take hold of one man in that day. And so they're taking hold of one man, but it also, just to drop in the back of your mind, it says, in that day, uh, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away uh, our reproach. And so we saw earlier uh, the men, they were you remember they were trying to take hold of any man they could uh, to try to be a leader. They would just grab anyone. Uh, And the women here uh, are desperate to take hold of any man that they can to be their husband. And I I think this shows us something of the problem because at the end of chapter 2, you'll remember that they were were warned to stop regarding man. You remember whose breath is in their nostrils. That was the the end of chapter 2. And what they needed to do was not to take hold of man, but to take hold of God and to start regarding God. Um, but that brings us to the end of this long section. So it's continued from most of chapter two all through chapter three and into the beginning of chapter four of, of the sin and the wickedness of the people in that actual time. And, and this last section that we've seen today, it, it emphasized uh, not their religious, but their civil or social failings and as I mentioned just a minute ago you would have noticed as well uh, twice there was the use of this that phrase in that day in that day there'll be judgment on these these people so it was in verses 18 and it was again in chapter 4 verse 1 and in both occurrences of that of that saying in that day it spoke of Judah's immediate day of judgment and exile and so These were real events that would unfold in history. And as we see through Isaiah's work, actually vindicate the word of the Lord in his own day, as well as seeing the future events as well. So they validated it to be true. They were taken away into captivity. But if you now look at chapter 4, verse 2, and the phrase is repeated for a third time. It's actually used several times throughout the whole passage, but um, third time for us today. And this time it means something entirely different. And so that brings us to the final section, that final bracketed section that I mentioned earlier, where the prophecy now shifts focus. It jumps again to the distant future, and it gives another vision of this coming kingdom of God. So we began there and we end there. Uh, and so we notice the phrase in the start of verse 2, 4 verse 2, "...in that day." In that day, and it says, The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And the the saying there, the branch of the Lord, perhaps you can see what that means, but that's a messianic title. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and and, and multiple other passages in Scripture say similar things. Uh, 11, verse 1 says, Then a shoot will spring, from the stem of Jesse. So you imagine this stump, they can get cut down, but a little shoot will grow up from the stump of this tree. And it says a branch, that's the same technical term, a branch from its roots will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And so this branch is personified and we know it speaks of Jesus. And so many even see in this uh, a reference to Jesus's divine nature, so the, the branch in our passages is, is it's the branch of the Lord. It's of God. It's His divine nature. But we also see here the words, the, the fruit of the earth. And, and one preacher, he said, you could take fruit of the earth and you could capitalize that saying too, because it's another messianic title and it refers, it refers to Jesus' human nature. He's the fruit of the earth or the fruit of the land. He's of God and He's, he's of man as well. And so... These last few verses just—it's just just dense and rich and theologically thick. I just can only point out a few things as we as we cover over it. But um, we also see mentioned there survivors. We have going on in this. If we looked at parallel texts, the tribulation period, Uh, and the Messiah appears to these survivors as beautiful and glorious. That's what the people now think of God and of the Messiah. And so rather than glorying in earrings and handbags. Jesus is now what they are glory in. He's their pride and adornment. And so we see something here. Uh, it's gotta be a totally different picture than their historical setting because the people are so different. Uh, verse three says it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains will be called holy. That's different than all the unholiness we've seen. And we know this is uh, speaking of the transforming power of the gospel because uh, the next words say, and again, this is, a, this is what I mean by the denseness of this passage, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. The, in the Hebrew, it's literally everyone who is written unto life. And so we see the doctrine of election flowing through this passage. Uh, the, next, the, the people are cleansed. If you can look at verse 4, it says, Uh, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the uh, spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Uh, And the word for filth uh, is not the most pleasant word. It can be translated as vomit, but it refers to inner uncleanness, just horrible inward uncleanness. And the word there for bloodshed, it refers to the outward marks of a wrong life. And so um, you, have, you have both aspects there, an inward uncleanness and our outward acts, they're all washed away. And they're said to be washed away by the Spirit. So the Spirit is the agent in this passage applying all this change. And if that's not enough, you look at verse 5, and it says, then the Lord will create. And that word create in Hebrews, it always speaks of a creative act by God. It's like in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. It's a special word for creation. So we see a new creation uh, that's brought about in these peoples. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies. It says, a cloud by day, even smoke and the, the brightness of a flaming fire by night. And I hope you're thinking back Uh, to that time when God led Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But this speaks to us, and I think you can see what I mean. There's so much in here that I'm just mentioning, but this speaks to us of God's presence with his people. So God is now cleansed, washed, his spirits cleaned them up, he's changed them, he's made them new creations, Uh, he's he's now present with his people. But verse 5 ends by saying, for over all the glory, there will be a canopy. And so the word canopy is another fascinating word. It's only used three times in the Old Testament. And the two other times that this word canopy is used, it it speaks of a bridal chamber. And so Psalm 19 verse 5, to give you one of those two verses, it says, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber or canopy. And so this this means that God is not only imminent uh, sorry it's not only present with these people he's intimately present with these people is this is an, a, a, a totally different relationship with God verse 6 concludes uh, with this it says when there will be a shelter another interesting word to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain and so the word shelter can be translated as booth, and we've heard a lot about the feast of booths. And so, as so, the um, if you think of the days of Israel's wilderness wanderings, the glory of the Lord was present with them in their tabernacle. You remember their tent of meeting; that that booth um, was God present. But at that stage, they weren't allowed into the tent of meeting, and so. if um, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, at that time it says this, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But then it adds this, it says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. But here, even the booth of God's presence is open to his people. So this is a, an incredible relationship with God that these people have. But I want to say more Um, But I'll finish by saying this. Uh, The Word of God not only speaks to the church, it also has something to say to our society. And so the greatest problem that our society faces are the problems caused by the sinful nature of the sons of men. And the only cure, not just in the church, but for all of the world that surrounds us, is the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, <coughs> excuse me, it was a well-known pastor and teacher called S. Lewis Johnson, and he spoke of Isaiah's boldness in speaking into the societal matters of his day. And he, he said this, he says, Let me tell you something. There comes a time that if we're to stand up for our country We must stand up and tell the truth as it really is in our country. And he says, Isaiah had the guts. Uh, That's what it was. That was the spiritual guts to get up and say to the people of his day that they were ruined and that they were fallen and that they had departed from God. And then he added, we need that today too. (laughs) Let's bow and pray. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for such an ancient uh, word of truth. <coughs> Lord, we see so much wrong with our world and we know the answer. We thank you for Christ. Amen.